0: Just in case there were any Quichua people here today, I wanted to say hello to you. Uh, I am David Sills. The Lord has called me to be involved in international missions, as the Lord has called every one of you to be involved in international missions. What I don't know is precisely the role that he's called you to fill, but I do know that every believer has some responsibility international missions. It's pleasing to the Lord when His church gets involved with missions. It's His mission. He's allowed us and called us to join Him in that task. That's a great blessing. It is a great blessing to be a part of a church that has such a missions vision. Mary and I were remarking, just as we were arriving today, how encouraging it is to see a church that is so engaged in missions. You have this annual missions conference, you have booths represented, and you have a lot of missionaries that you help support, you pray for, you're connected with. And that is an encouragement to me. I remember reading here a while back, a a, a guy was talking about the passage where he said, without a vision, the people perish. And certainly that's true, but he turned it around and said the opposite is also true. Without a people, the vision perishes. And so while I'm thankful to your pastor and your elders, your leadership team here for missions and the leadership that they have obviously made a priority so that we can have this kind of weekend, I'm thankful for you too. And as I share this day, I want all of us to be praying about, Lord, what might you say to me? What is my role in your plan for the nation's? I want to share a couple of uh, things that I I just refer to as missionary math. Nobody needs a calculator or anything like that, but they're just numbers for us to keep in mind. I've shared these throughout the weekend, but uh, as the pastor said, some of you weren't here, so it kind of sets the context to let you know where we are going, what we're keeping in mind as we unpack a passage of Scripture today. The truth is that in this world of over 7 billion people, a third of those people have not heard the gospel. They don't have a missionary. They don't have a pastor. They don't have a church like this. They don't have a Jesus film. They have no access to the scriptures. They don't know how they can know the Lord Jesus Christ. That's over 2,000 million people. 2 billion people plus don't know the gospel. And we've had the Great Commission to take it to them for 2,000 years. We talked a little bit yesterday about how in just 121 years, since its invention, already in 121 years, the Coca-Cola logo and product is recognized by over 95% of the people on this planet. But in 2,000 years, to obey the Lord Jesus Christ and bring glory to His name, still a third of the world has not even heard the gospel. These numbers have faces. And the faces have names. This is real life. Out of that number of people who haven't heard the gospel, on average every day, around 50,000 die and go into a Christless eternity. That happened last night before we went to sleep. And that will happen again today. And it will happen again tomorrow. And it will happen the day after tomorrow. And you say, my soul, somebody should tell them the gospel. And yes, we should. We should take the gospel message to these nations that have not heard. But our era, our period of history has sort of bought this reductionistic view of missions that missions equals reaching the unreached. That that's what we need to do is just take them the gospel. But you know, Jesus didn't call us to go you therefore and get decisions from all men. He sent us to go and to make disciples and even said, teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. And we can't do that in a one-week mission trip or in a six-month evangelistic campaign. We need people who will go and pour their lives into other cultures, teaching the gospel message to those who desperately need to hear it until they understand it, they are discipled, and they can teach those who come after them. That's the biblical principle. All the way back in the Shema where... The Lord says, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And then he says, parents, teach your children these truths. When you lay down at night, when you get up in the morning, when you walk down the street, as you go throughout your day, teach these things. The ones who know are to teach the ones who don't know yet. Paul says, older women, teach the younger women. To Timothy, he says, the things that you've heard from me in the presence of faithful men, entrust these to others who can entrust these to others, who can entrust these truths to still others. That's the pattern. God has children all over the world, but God has no grandchildren. Everyone must hear the gospel, come into a right relationship with God through Christ. Now, sadly, a lot of people think they've heard the gospel message, and they have a little cross on top of their building. But when you get inside and you scratch the surface a little bit, what you find is this is not salvific New Testament Christianity. This is just the name of Christianity because they still worship demons. They are still practicing witchcraft and curses. And this may sound even horrific for me to talk like that, but this is true. This is what we find around the world. Why? Because no one has ever gone to truly disciple the people and to teach them how to continue Christianity in their midst. And so what I would say is the great tragedy of the world, while it is terrible that a third of the world hasn't heard the gospel. The great tragedy of the world today is not that it is unreached. It is that it is undiscipled. Because I can't go to every place in the world and camp out and stay there forever and teach the people, pastor the churches, and train. What I have to do is to teach teachers and to train trainers and to disciple disciples and to evangelize evangelists in 2 Timothy 2 fashion so that everyone has an opportunity to hear the gospel and to continue it in their midst. Many of you perhaps reach Christian history or maybe in school sometime, you remember reading about, hearing about the great, the great Welsh revival that happened a number of years ago in Wales. D.A. Carson, if you read Christian literature today, you know that Don Carson is a contemporary author. has written some systematic theology books and et cetera. Don Carson said he and his wife were in Wales recently, a few years ago, on a vacation. And as they were driving throughout Wales, they saw an old Welsh Calvinistic Methodist church. And they thought, that's got to be one of the remnants of this Welsh revival. So they pulled off the road, and it was obvious they were having an open house that day. And they were giving little tours of this historic little church on the side of the road. And so they thought, well, let's go see. And they went in, and this little old lady was their tour guide. And she was taking them through, showing them... The church but he said looking at the things on the walls and just hearing some of the things that were going around in the building he realized this is not really an evangelical bible loving church anymore and so as he asked the lady he said is it true that revival that happened in this place that this, it really was the welsh revival like we've read about she said oh yes she said in fact i came to know the lord during those days He said, really? He said, you know, is it true that so many people came to know the Lord and they were so radically converted that when the miners would go down in the mines with their ponies, the ponies would not even obey the owners because the owners weren't using the expletives anymore and the ponies didn't understand the commands. And she laughed. She said, yep, that's really true. That really happened. And he said, well, I don't want to be offensive, but it's kind of obvious that this church is not really there anymore and she said no sadly it's not we don't hear the word of god preached here anymore and he said but you're still a believer and she said oh yes and he said well how do you get fed where do you receive nourishment from god's word and she said well there is a radio broadcast that is aimed at morocco and sometimes i can pick it up on my radio station and he, he just began to think about the ramifications. Of her statement what that means a place where God poured out his spirit and there was a massive awakening so much so that it made our history books and it warms our hearts to hear the stories and today no fruit remains and I resonated with that in fact I took that story and put it in one of those books back there because it perfectly illustrates what happened among our Kichwa people I shared yesterday uh, how there was an awakening among our Quechua people that was similar in the 1960s, 70s, and early part of the 80s. Thousands of people came to know the Lord. But you know, among the Quechua people, which are representative of many peoples around the world, they can't go to the capital city and go to a seminary because they don't have money to go to the capital city. They don't have. They don't speak a, lot, a Spanish well enough to get along in the capital city, which is the language of the big city. They don't have any job skills to support themselves there. And they're subsistence farmers back in the Quechua communities. What would their families do? And many of them are already pastoring churches, but without any training whatsoever. You might think, well, brother, let's just get him some some money so that he can go to that seminary in this big city and get the training. We'll help him with his Spanish. He doesn't know how to read or write. Well, I'll do the reading and writing for him, and I'll just tell him what the books say, and he can still get the training. Once he's lived in the city for three or four years, he's not very likely to go back out to the boonies and live in a place where he's not going to receive a salary. And in fact, for the Quechua people, if he receives a college degree, which is what a seminary degree level is, he has attained a level of education that is attained by less than 1% of his people group. Why would he go back out to the boonies? In fact, that's what happens when we send people from other countries to the United States to get training here. The majority of them do not go back home. It's what we call the brain drain. Which ones would we send to get the training? We would send the brightest and best. We would send those out. Please go get training so you can come back and help us. We're sending the brightest and best, and the brightest and best don't come back. So we're worse than we were to start with. What we've got to do is basically do what the Bible says. We've got to take the training and the discipling to them so that they can really understand. We've mentioned the the books back there, the Hearts, Heads, and Hands book. You've heard a number of the missionaries share the idea of discipling and training, teaching young people. That's the challenge that the Lord has given us. We do not have the luxury of simply going out and preaching the gospel on a one-week mission trip and declaring our work and missions over. Any more than a family doctor and family practice could work for one week and say, okay, I've healed everybody here in this city. My, my life is through here. No, there is always a new challenge, and there are always new wrinkles in people understanding the gospel and how to apply the Bible to their lives. These materials that we use for training any of you could use these materials and use them for discipleship here in Washington, or you could use it going with us on trips, or you could pack up from where you are and go to another part of the world. Anyone can use these. They are designed so that you help people know basic discipleship, what we call the heart of the person, practicing biblical spiritual disciplines of reading the word every day, praying, uh, having your quiet time, sharing the gospel, memorizing scripture, Just the basic spiritual disciplines, the heart, the head, Old Testament overview, New Testament overview, Christian doctrine, church history, uh, how to interpret the Bible, uh, how to do biblical counseling, how to lead in worship, all those aspects. That's the head knowledge. The hands, how do I disciple another person? How should I be a good steward of the resources God sends into my life? All the aspects of the doing of Christianity, that's the hands part of the book. There are nine basic modules. We take teams of people just like you to go, and we spend a week at a time with the pastors and the lay leaders who want to be trained, and we do that nine times over three years. And every time we go back, we gather those same guys together, and we pour another week of information into their Think about the greatest Bible teacher that you know, that you love. Maybe it's John MacArthur. Maybe it's John Piper. Maybe it's whoever you imagine. When you think about that, what if you could have 15 of your friends, 25, 30 of your friends, and you could sit in a room with that person eight hours a day just standing there in the room with you, teaching you through the scriptures or whatever the topic was. You could ask any questions. You share meals with that person. I mean, that would be a pretty phenomenal week. Well, in the work that we do overseas, you're that guy. You're the one. They look to you that way. And that may startle some of us. We're a little nervous, but that book also includes all the teaching outlines. So everything's laid out for you. The reason I'm sharing all this is to say there is a phenomenal need around the world. And we sometimes think, I wish God would call some superstars to go do that. And God has. And they are you. We certainly need finances to do what we do. Absolutely. We, we need finances to go and to train these pastors in places in Cuba and Africa and Asia and throughout Latin America, the Caribbean. We do need that. But much more than money, we need warm bodies. Because I cannot go everywhere. The people that work with us cannot go everywhere. So we are mobilizing the church all over the world to go all over the world with all of the gospel. In fact, our little watchword or our motto is all of God's people going into all of the world to faithfully obey all of the Great Commission. There's nobody here right now who is a believer who's not called to be involved in international missions. Every one of us are. I don't know what your role is, but I do know that you are to be a goer or you are to be a sender or you are in sin. There is no other option. Now, to be a sender, you pray. Perhaps you give financially. You say, well, I'm already doing both of those. Then do it as if souls depended on your involvement. God may call you to go, and you may come back. And you may go and go and go. But we are to go, and we are to give. Pastors people who are serving churches, Chesuta, Peru. I was, in, I was preaching up in uh, a place called Guaras, uh Peru, up in the mountains, and these guys came to me, and they said, brother, come out and train us. And I said, where are you? And they told me where they were, a place called Chesuta, out in the lowland part of Peru and toward the jungle. And I said, well, do you even have churches out there? And they said, oh, we've got about 20 churches out here. I said, do they have pastors? And they said, well, they got somebody in charge. And I said, well, do they have Bibles? And they said, well... A couple of them have some New Testament. Some of them have some Jehovah's Witnesses Bibles. And I thought, do they have training? And they just laughed at me. And I I said, well, if they don't have training and they don't even have Bibles, what are they preaching? And just as serious as they could be, they looked at me and they said, well, whatever they dream about on Saturday night. I mean... Wouldn't that be the Lord's word to the, I said, yeah, we'll come out there and do some training. So we started going out there and bring... But these guys will come from four and five different tribes, and they will come for two weeks. Think about the next two weeks of your life is going to be spent walking down trails, riding through jungles and rivers and dugout canoes, going through enemy territory and et cetera. And by the time we arrive, there will be about 45 guys who've gathered. And they do that every four months. When we go back, they're there. And we go to the next level of training. And we pour into their lives teaching them. Oftentimes, we'll have guys who are training the pastors. But while we're training the pastors outside, we're doing vacation Bible school with all the kids in all this area of that village. Or maybe the ladies who go are able to do counseling and Bible studies with the ladies. And so the ladies are over here in one room, and they're receiving their Bible studies and training and discipleship. Maybe we're going into the schools and we're sharing with the student body. Maybe with the faculty. We do community evangelism. We've done medical teams. We've done construction and painting. No matter what else needs to be done, the people that go on the trip, every single person who goes comes back to the States knowing it mattered that I was there. My gift, my skill, my talent, what the Lord has poured into me, I had, because we designed the trip around who who wants to go. But it's like a bicycle wheel. The hub of that bicycle wheel with us is always training pastors and leaders. But there are a lot of spokes off of that. In any spoke you want to be, we will find a role for you to plug in on these trips. Why? Because we want all of God's people going into all of the world to faithfully obey all of the Great Commission. And part of the reason I want to do that is because God has people now serving full-time on the field with us and with other mission agencies who did not have career missions on their radar screen. They just wanted to go on one of these trips with us and participate in that. And God began to stir their heart. I shared already that God called me and he called my wife to international missions through short-term trips. And the fact is, God can't lead you based on information you don't have. So I want to get you exposed to as much of the world as I possibly can and just see what God's going to do. You will pray for missions differently. You will watch CNN differently. You will give to missions differently. You will serve in your local church differently as a result of going. I was in Brazil. I was talking with the leadership of the entire convention, you know, that Um, Brazil is a big country. It's the size of the continental United States. They told me that there in Brazil, until you've graduated from seminary, you can't be a pastor because you have to graduate from seminary to be ordained. And you have to be ordained to baptize and serve as a, a church pastor. You can be called an evangelist and you may be the only pastor in your whole region of the country. You're the only leader, the only pastor, but you can't carry the title, and you can't baptize, and you can't do the Lord's Supper, just the way their rules work down there. That's how they operate. And they said, what we have are a bunch of evangelists that need to receive your training so that we can ordain them and call them pastors. And I was thinking, this is me, me, my suitcase, sitting there talking to these guys, and I said, okay, how many guys do you think we we should train? And they said, oh, we have at least 10,000 that need the training. And and I I had to say, brother, there's no way we can come train 10,000 people. I said, well, what we could do, if you will pull out the sharper ones, we can come and train some of those guys, and then they can fan out and train other groups of guys, and then we'll come back and we'll train them through the next module, and they can go out and train the guys through their next module, and et cetera. We'll find ways to do it. But what breaks my heart and I hope breaks yours is every time I tell somebody yes, I'm saying no to lots of other people because there's just a not enough. There's just not enough of God's people who are willing to say, yeah, I'll take my vacation this year and I'll go help you guys do that. I want to be a part of doing it. I want to see how that works. Just, just do it. And you say, well, I can't. I, I, there's no way I can go internationally right now. Well, then help somebody else go because there are other people perhaps sitting next to you right now who would be willing to go and who would be able to go, but they maybe they lack the finances to go. We don't charge for our trips. What the trips cost is what they cost. And we don't charge the nationals for coming to our training. I tell all of our national brothers, this training is absolutely free, but it's very expensive. And they get nervous, they grab their wallet, you know, and I say, no, what I mean is we expect every one of you while we're doing the training to have at least one other disciple that you're pouring this information into while we're gone. When we come back, we're going to teach you again, and then you're going to go back to your disciples, hopefully plural, and you're going to train them again what we've taught you. That's the expensive part. It's going to cost you your time. It's going to cost you your prayers. It's going to cost you your effort. Your life is, I hope this isn't new information. Your life is not yours. You've been bought with a price. And the one who bought you is the Lord of your life. And if he is the Lord of your life, what he says is what you will do. I want us to see this morning just what it is he said for us to do and how he gets people's attention to go and do that. What does it look like? We've talked a lot this weekend about the missionary call. In fact, that's one of the books back there, and and I began to think a lot about that a few years ago because a lot of people were asking me, what is it really, brother, to be called into missions? Every believer has a role to play, and they know that. They're just not sure what their role would be. You remember Paul said, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And we like that. That'll preach. Thanks, Paul. That's a good one. We love that one. But then he began to ask a series of uncomfortable questions. He said, how can they call on somebody they've not believed in? And how can they believe in somebody they've never heard of? And how can they hear unless somebody preaches? And how can they preach unless they are sent? We are all to be involved. Maybe you're to go preach, but if you're not to go preach, you are to sin, just like the church at Antioch that we considered already in this weekend. We think about missions. You know, the father of modern missions we know of is William Carey. He sailed in 1792 from London to India and served as a missionary there, did phenomenal work, translated the scriptures in about 40 different languages. But William Carey served with another couple of guys there, Ward and Marshman, and they were what we call the Serampore trio there in Serampore, India and did phenomenal work, so much so that we call him the father of modern missions. But you know, they could not have done what they did if it had not been for the London trio of Fuller and Sutcliffe and John Ryland, Jr., who prayed for them. They were the advocates. They raised support for them, and they constantly were encouraging them. William Carey and them could not have done anything on the field like what they did without those advocates back home, God may have called all of you to be advocates here at home. He's not calling you to go. You, you know that in your heart. I also know people that are career missionaries who knew that in their heart too. But nonetheless, you may think, I know in my heart I'm not to go. Then you are to sin. You're to be those Andrew Fullers and those John Ryland Juniors and those John Sutcliffe's. Everybody should answer God's call in the way that he Calls you. So here's the question we're about to dive in. That was all introduction. Here we go. When God calls you, this is a question I want you to be able, not to answer to me, I'm nobody. You'll know that already, I'm I'm nobody. There's nothing special about me. When God calls you, make up your mind before we even get started. When God calls you, whatever that is to do, how will you respond? When we were first going to the mission field a million years ago, it was pre-internet days, pre-Netflix days and all that. So we took a a trunk, one of these old-fashioned trunks. We took one filled with VHS tapes. We took our kids' favorite movies, you know, Fiddler on the Roof and all that kind of stuff. One of those movies that we took was that Indiana Jones show about finding the lost, uh, the Holy Grail. That's what it was. And, you know, there's a scene in the movie where... His dad gets shot, and he goes into this cave, and he's looking at all these possible grails. He has to pick out the right one, take it with water, go out there so his dad, because if you drink from this thing, you live forever. And so he was going to take it out to his dad so his dad can live forever. And there's this old Templar knight guarding these grails, right, played by Sir Lawrence Olivier. And in the scene, just as he's about to grab the grail to go save his dad, the bad guy, the Nazi guy, comes in with his pistol drawn, And he wants to get that because he wants to have eternal life. And so he's looking at the various grails, and he grabs one. And Sir Lawrence Olivier says, choose wisely, because just as drinking from the grail brings eternal life, drinking from the wrong one brings instant death. And so he grabs one, he fills it with water, and he drinks of it, and then... and what was then pretty graphic. Now it'd probably be as hokey as maybe a high school play, but he drinks it and he gets really old, really fast. And I used to cover my kids' eyes because he would explode all over the scene, right? But the master of understatement, Sir Lawrence Olivier says, he chose poorly. And I thought, you think? Yeah, I mean, really poorly. You know, Jonah chose poorly. God said, go preach at Nineveh, and he took a ship. When you look in your Bible atlas and your map, you see that he went the exact opposite direction. He was running from what God said to do. What has God said for you to do? And if he says something this morning, how will you respond? Now, I want to uh, speak today from a from a missionary passage that doesn't sound like one to many of you, and it's the calling of Moses. Back when Moses was running from justice, and is living out in the middle of the desert. Now, let's just remember quickly the story of Moses. You know, he is born at a time when Israel is under great persecution because they're slaves, they're in Egypt, and Pharaoh has decided they're growing so quickly, we're gonna throw the boy babies in the river to thin out the population. So his mom, of course, not wanting to throw him into the river, puts him in this little ark, and she sends him down the river, and his sister is kind of watching, and she sees that Pharaoh's daughter fishes him out, calls him Moses, and she needs somebody to wet-nurse this baby. And so Miriam says, look, I'll go get a Hebrew woman if you want me to, to nurse the child. She says, great, so I'll pay. And so she goes and gets her own mom. She's able to raise her son. And when he's weaned, he's raised in the very court of Pharaoh, receives an Egyptian worldview and mindset because he's trained like an Egyptian. He has the same values and appreciation, but when he's about 40, he decides he will identify with his people, and he sees an Egyptian mistreating one of his people, and he kills the guy. Word gets out, gets back to Pharaoh. He's wanted for for murder, and he gets out of Dodge. He takes off running, and he's on the other side of the wilderness now, keeping his father-in-law's sheep and goats. Now, Moses is at one of the lowest ebbs of life you could possibly imagine by now. Because he is keeping the sheep and goats, number one, of his father-in-law. He is 80 years old by now. 80-year-old man who still doesn't even have his own animals. He's having to keep somebody else's animals. And it's even worse. It's kind of like the prodigal son because he was raised as an Egyptian, right? The reason that matters to us in this story is you remember when Joseph was reunited with his brothers toward the end of Genesis, and he says, now, look, I'm going to go and present you to Pharaoh, and when you go in there, make sure you say, we, your servants, are shepherds, and he'll let you live over here in the land of Goshen, which is a good spot, but you can live over there because that's where all the animals go. And then the Bible says, because shepherds and shepherding were abhorrent to the Egyptians. So it's like the prodigal son keeping pigs. 80-year-old Moses had everything going for him, and for the last 40 years, he's been caring for his father-in-law's animals, living out on the other side of the wilderness, and to make matters worse, he's a shepherd. What a shameful life he had, but he saw this bush on fire that didn't burn up, and so he goes near, and as he draws near, you know the Lord says, Moses, take your sandals off your feet, the place where you're standing is holy ground. Now, before we get started, a couple more questions I want you to think about. One, what unexpected source might God use to speak to you today? When, I said when God calls, how will you answer? But how will he call? What unexpected source might he use? Maybe not a burning bush, maybe some weird missions professor from Louisville, Kentucky that's here preaching to you this weekend. Maybe the the Bible study you did today. Maybe uh, somebody you hear on the radio. Something that somebody says over the meal in a little while. What unexpected source could God use to speak to you? And then secondly, is your approach to God sufficiently humble? One of the most dangerous things of being in a being a Christian and being in a church and handling God's word regularly is it kind of gets casual after a while. We flip it around, we tuck in the the bulletins into our Bible, we maybe write a note to ourselves in the fly leaf or something. It just it's God's word. It's the Bible. And as I said last night, this Bible does not contain God's word. This is God's word. Our hands should tremble a little bit when we pick it up. This this is God's word to us. And even sinful people like me, God speaks through. Just like he spoke through a donkey. God can use anyone, anywhere, any when. And when God chooses to speak to you, is your approach sufficiently humble? Do you need to, like, figuratively figuratively remove the sandals from your feet? Well, let's jump into the story. God had seen the need, and he was going to respond to it. Exodus 3, verses 7 and 8. Notice the action verbs as I read these two verses, and see who is the actor of these verbs. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have Heard, God has heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. In other words, God is the one rescuing his people. He's the one that heard the need. And He is the one bringing about the answer. I said that there are over 2,000 million people who haven't heard the gospel message right now around the world. If God were to somehow come in here today and speak to us, I wonder if He might say something like, I have surely seen the affliction of 2 billion lost people, and I have heard their cry because of their harsh taskmaster Satan. I know their sufferings and their sufferings to come, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of demons and to bring them up out of that darkness and bondage to reconciliation and peace with me, salvation and eternal life. I mentioned last night that in one country in Northeast Africa, the average life expectancy of a new believer is 45 days. And you say, it's a gospel hostile world. I mean, can God really do that kind of, Work in a person's heart. God is able to save, and he can save anyone anytime. In, in Genesis, or I mean Exodus 3, verses 19 and 20, God says, But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. This is the cool part. After that, he will let you go. It gives me great peace, and it should give you great peace that God already knows the future. He doesn't just know the future. He knows the potential future. You remember when David was hiding in the city, and the enemy was coming, Saul was coming with his army, and David said, Lord, if I stay here, will they turn me over? And God said, they will. And David didn't stay. God knew what would happen. If somebody tells you God doesn't know the future, Watch those people because they will lie to you about other things, too. God does know the future. He doesn't just know what will happen. He knows that if you zig instead of zag, what's going to happen that way, too? God knows all things, and he knows what he's going to have to do to change the hearts of hard-hearted people. Ezekiel said he takes out the heart of stone and puts in a heart of flesh. God does that. Regeneration is in the hands of God. He does not need to wait and see. Don't let it get past you that he's using Moses, a fugitive from murder, to go back to the place where he's wanted to bring the labor force out of slavery. God is able to use anyone, anywhere, any when. And just before we go any farther, let me remind you he can use you. Now, sometimes when I say things like that, people say, but brother, I know what you're saying sounds good, and I know you believe that very well, but you don't know what I've done. And I will say to them and to you, I don't need to know what you've done, because I know what he has done, and I know that he can use anyone that he wants to. He can redeem any. Life, And I'm just not just talking about eternal salvation. I'm talking about redeeming your life and making it count for Him. Anyone, anywhere, any when. Has it ever escaped your notice that God chose three murderers to write the majority of the Bible? Nobody is too bad or been bad too long for God to be able to use you In the way that he chooses. There's another story of a guy that lived in our country a number of years ago, a couple hundred years ago. He lived at a time when to be a pastor, it was kind of like Brazil. You had to go to the Bible or the divinity training school and graduate to be ordained, to serve as a minister. And that's what he knew the Lord had called him to do. He wanted to be a minister, he knew God. Had called him to do that, so he goes to get training. But this seminary where he's getting his training had kind of gone liberal, had really gone liberal, and some of the professors weren't even believers. And he was having a conversation with a friend in a hallway, and they're mentioning something about some professor, and he said, Oh, that professor, he doesn't have any more grace than that chair. Well, the word got back to that professor, who, of course, was very angry, and they kicked him out of school. Well, I mean, now his life is over. Wait a minute. I'm called to be a minister. I got to go to school. So he apologizes and appeals to get back in. The professor said, I accept your apology, but you're not getting back into school. And then he made a public apology to the whole student body. I'm sorry. It was a private remark, but it was foolish. I shouldn't have said it. And he humbled himself, but they still didn't let him back in. So he got other ministers to appeal for him, the great Jonathan Edwards wrote an appeal for David Brainerd to be accepted to go back into school, and they still wouldn't let him in. His life was over because of a foolish mistake. So the only thing he knew to do was just take his Bible, and he went out into the woods, and he began to preach to the indigenous peoples, the Native American folks that he found there in New England at the time. What he didn't know is, even though he was a very young man, he should have been strong and healthy, but he had latent tuberculosis that was exacerbated by the harsh climate and he began to get very sick living out in the snow and the ice and not being able to be clothed with the right kind of protection or know how to live like the indigenous people did. And he died when he was 29. But he left behind this diary That Jonathan Edwards got, in fact, he actually died in Jonathan Edwards' home. He had gone there when his health got really, really bad and didn't live very long. And when he died, he left, of course, that that journal, that diary. And Jonathan Edwards published it, The Life and Diary of David Brainerd. And that was such a powerful testimony of how God stirs in your heart and what God was telling him and what he was seeing happening among these indigenous peoples and just a commitment that he made. I don't know if you've ever read it, but you feel guilty for breathing after just a couple of pages. It's just unbelievable how godly this young man was. We still use that book in seminaries today. And when William Carey, you remember the guy that I said is the father of modern missions, when he sailed to India, he took his Bible But another book that he took was The Life and Diary of David Brainerd because it stirred his heart to consider missions at a time when a lot of churches didn't consider missions. God used and still uses David Brainerd powerfully, but not in the way that David Brainerd expected him to be used. He expected to be a minister of a local church, and God had greater things planned. Do you think Joseph... Planned on being sold by his brothers, being sold into slavery, being accused falsely, going to prison, and suffering all the things that he suffered before God raised him up and used him so powerfully for the peoples at that time. God can use anyone. Don't let something in your past excuse you from God's service. Don't let a mistake or a decision you've made exclude you from what God has planned for your life. God can use the least resource. Look in chapter 3, verse 11 with me. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Chapter 4, verse 1. Then Moses answered, But behold, they will not listen to me or listen to my voice, for they'll say, The Lord did not appear to you. And the Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? He said, a staff. He said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent. And Moses ran from it. I would too. But the Lord said to Moses, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand, and he caught it, and it became a staff in his hand again. Now, I know that Moses is not showing up as a really powerful man of God up to this point, but we do see a little faith in Moses' right now, don't we? Because those of you who know anything about snakes at all know that when you grab it by the tail, the business end is still loose, right? And he reached out according to God's word, and he did what God said, and God turned it back into a staff. And God was showing him, you don't have to have amazing natural abilities to be used the way that I plan to use you. Somebody wrote about this stick, this staff, and they said, A shepherd's staff was commonly a three to six-foot wooden rod with a curved hook at the top. The shepherd used it for walking, guiding his sheep, killing snakes, and many other tasks. Still, it was just a stick. But God used the simple shepherd's staff Moses carried as a sign to teach him an important lesson. God sometimes takes joy in using ordinary things for extraordinary purposes. While it's easy to assume that God can use special skills, you must not hinder his use of the everyday contributions that you can make. So what are the ordinary things in your hand? A pen, a computer, a musical instrument, cooking skills, an automobile, a checkbook? What is it that you say, this is just ordinary? What is it that you have that God might use to do His will in the world? The Great Commission was given to the church. You are a part of the church. J. Hudson Taylor, the guy that we call the Father of Faith Missions, who started China Inland Mission, he said the Great Commission is not an option for you to consider. It is a commandment to obey. And God can communicate through you. Exodus 4, verses 10 to, 10 to 12. But Moses said to the Lord, O my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you've spoken to your servant. I'm slow of speech and of tongue. And then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who's made him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now, therefore, go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. Now, if we were to continue, we would see that in the next verse, Moses is basically saying, here am I, O Lord, send Aaron. Right, he didn't want to go. He wanted somebody else to go for him, but he was making excuses. He was afraid. You may be afraid sometimes, too, when God tells you to do a thing, calls you to do a thing, but don't let fear answer when God calls. God is able. Moses made excuses, perhaps like Jonah made excuses. God will still have his way. God stirs your heart to do his will. Spurgeon, again, one of my heroes. I mentioned him earlier in the weekend. Listen to this quote that, that, Fuller, that, that Spurgeon said. If Jesus is precious to you, you will not be able to keep your good news to yourself. You will be whispering it into your child's ear. You will be telling it to your husband. You will be earnestly imparting it to a friend. Without the charms of eloquence, you will be more than eloquent. Your heart will speak, and your eyes will flash as you talk of his sweet love. Every Christian here is either a missionary or an imposter. Recollect that, Spurgeon said you either try to spread abroad the kingdom of Christ or else you do not love him at all. What is a missionary then? Do you have to sell the farm and go to the other side of the world? Spurgeon didn't. He never did that. So what did he mean? I think he probably had a definition of a missionary. It's like a missionary is anyone who cannot get used to the sound of pagan footsteps on their way to a Christless eternity. Some of you will continue to think about the numbers that we talked about, the number of people who need to hear the gospel message. They need to be discipled. They need to understand who Christ is and what it is to be saved. Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, TEACHING THEM TO OBEY EVERYTHING THAT I HAVE COMMANDED YOU. WHAT'S NOT BEING DONE RIGHT NOW, SOMEWHERE IN THE WORLD, IS SOMETHING THAT YOU CAN DO. AND WHEN IT'S DONE, IT'S GOING TO RESULT IN GLORY TO CHRIST AND EXTENSION OF THE KINGDOM. IT COULD BE, AGAIN, YOU DON'T HAVE TO GO, Maybe maybe it's more time on your knees. Maybe it is dedicating some aspect of your budget to missions. The bigger mistake that a lot of us make in churches and in families and as individuals is to ask this. Lord, what is the place of missions in my budget? What is the place of missions in our church plan for the year? That's the wrong question. The question is, what is the place of my budget in your plan for the world? What is the place of my time, our church's plan, in what you want to do in the world? That's the question to ask. He's left us here with a great commission, but he's also given us some great commandments. What are they? The great commandment is this, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And Martin Luther said, if that's the greatest commandment, to not do that must be the greatest sin. He said, I've never loved God that much for five minutes in my life. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. If you genuinely love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, you're going to want to see all the nations come and worship him and bring him glory to magnify his name, to praise him all over the world. You're going to want to see that great multitude to see God receive glory From his world. And if you love your neighbor as yourself, you're not going to want to run the risk of your neighbor spending eternity in hell. Sometimes we think, oh, I don't want to mention this to my neighbor because I might offend them. Really? You would would rather avoid offending your neighbor knowing that they may go to hell, but, you know, they're going to go to hell without being offended by me if they go? it's, It's bad thinking. We're confused. If we really love them, we're going to risk offending them because we not only have the great commission and the great commandments, we have a great compassion that Jesus modeled. Remember in Mark 6, 34, the people were coming out to Jesus and the Bible says, Jesus looked up his, his, lifted up his eyes and he saw the multitude coming out and he was moved with compassion because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. They were, they were people who were listening to people Folks Who would preach their dreams from the night before they were listening to people who would sleep under the sacred waterfall out in the jungle and what you dream while you're sleeping by the waterfall would be what the deities what the ancestors are telling you to guide your people in daily life and you think Jesus said we are to go and to make disciples where Lord Jerusalem Judea Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. That is, there is no place we should not go. And Jesus wasn't giving us a timeline. Once you have won everyone in Seattle, then you can move out into the rest of the western part of the U.S. You will never reach everyone in Seattle. You will never reach everyone in the the western part of the United States. You will never reach everyone in the western hemisphere, and you will never reach everyone around the world. These were ALL THE PLACES WHERE WE NEED TO BE INVOLVED AS THE HOLY SPIRIT LEADS AND GUIDES. WHEN THE POWER COMES UPON YOU, YOU WILL BE MY WITNESSES. NOW, I HAVEN'T BEEN TO THE uttermost PARTS OF THE EARTH, BUT I'VE BEEN TO THE PLACES WHERE YOU COULD SEE IT FROM THERE, I THINK. THERE ARE SOME FOLKS, SOME PLACES AROUND HERE THAT ARE VERY ISOLATED FROM THE GOSPEL WHEN YOU GO AROUND THE WORLD. THEY'RE DIFFICULT, THEY'RE HARD PLACES TO GO TO. AND SOME OF YOU FEEL CHALLENGED BY THAT. YOU WANT TO GO. SOME OF YOU ARE GOERS. Others of you are very excited thinking about what you can give, maybe more than you've given before, sacrificially giving so that others can go. But that passage we mentioned, the Romans 10, 13 to 15 passage, John MacArthur says, turn that around to look at the importance of getting people to the mission field. He said, if God did not send preachers, no one could hear. And if no one could hear, no one could believe. And if no one could believe, no one could call on the name of the Lord. And if no one calls on the name of the Lord, no one will be saved. It all starts with someone being sent to preach the gospel. Why is it when you were saved, you aren't immediately taken to heaven? Thank you, Lord Jesus, for saving me. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. And there you go off to heaven. How come that didn't happen? You're still here. You're still here because God has a plan for you here in this world. What is it? What is your role in his plan for the world? We talked a little bit last night about knowing God's will and, and how the, the various steps or, or uh, ingredients in the cake of knowing God's will that we need to keep in mind. They're on the tape. They're in chapter 2 of that book, The Missionary Call. You can get those later. Um, they're just biblical things to consider when you're looking for God's will in your life. What might lead you to consider a missionary call? Maybe a sermon, maybe a passage. I know missionaries on the field that just on their own, reading the scriptures, God began to impress them that they should go. I was just reading, one of the funnest things I've had here this weekend is meeting people who have connections to Ecuador. Uh, people who know the McCulley's from when Mary Lou came back with the boys from after the martyrdom and after she would served there at the at the children's dorm there in Quito for the MKs, and came back here, served at hospital in Auburn as a bookkeeper, and people know those kinds of folks because that story has just impacted my life in an amazing way. Getting to know various ones of you and the bits and pieces that you know about other folks around the world, thinking about Ed McCulley just last night as I was thinking about meeting someone who knew uh, the boys and that family. You know what God used to stir him to go to the field? He was reading the book of Nehemiah. And God used that story to show him what a life committed to God can be like. Maybe it's sermons. Maybe it's global influences. Maybe it's a short-term mission trip. Maybe it's being aware of a need. You saw a tsunami or an earthquake on television. Or you saw a documentary about Islam or voodoo or Whatever it was, and you you were really burdened by it. I know a lady that's a missionary in Peru. She was reading about Jesus' reinstatement of Peter at the end of John. And she read the passage, and she had read it many times before, where Jesus says, do you love me? And she's just reading it, you know, playing the role of Peter in her mind. Yes, Lord, you know I love you. And Jesus asked him again, of course, do you love me? And he said, yes, Lord, you know I love you. But each time Jesus said what? Feed my sheep. Care for my sheep. And it dawned on her, He's talking to me right now, and he's asking me if I love him. And she knew the steps she needed to take. And she's a missionary with her family in Peru now. And I might add, she's legally blind. She She had a teenage daughter when they accepted the place to a very isolated spot of Peru. But that was her answer to the Lord Jesus, and it was her whole family's answer. An awareness of the needs of the lost, an awareness of the needs of the nations in many ways, God uses to call people to the field. The absence of clear teaching on a missionary call leads a lot of folks to think, I've got to see my name written on a cloud where God says, go to this country. I've got to wake up and see Jesus standing at the foot of my bed. I've got to have some understanding of the precise zip code where I'm to go around the world. You can't analyze a call that might come to you by comparing it to someone else's. God calls people and they answer in unique ways in every single case. So the question we started with, we come back to when God calls you, how will you respond? That's the question that you have to answer. When God calls, how will you respond? A good step is to be ready. Have a passport. That's an inv- you don't want to be the football player when the coach calls your number and you can't find your helmet. Have a passport. Be ready to go. Here I am, Lord. I'm ready. If you call me, I'll send. If you don't call me, but I'm ready to go. And don't let age be a barrier. A lot of people have told me, "Oh, brother, phew, that was powerful today." I hope the young people are listening. Remember, Moses was eighty when the Lord called him to do his life's work. Abraham was 75 when the Lord called him. Don't let youth be a barrier. Timothy was a young man. Solomon was a young man. Jeremiah said, I am only a youth. There is no barrier to what God wants to do. What he's looking for is our availability more than our ability. There's one country, let me say this, there's a country that a few years ago, missiologists, which is kind of what I have to do for a living, missiologists, missionaries, people who are involved in missions, would say that country will never have people who can be openly Christian. People who will say, yes, I'm an ev- you, they're not even going to let you come in their country, much less be a missionary. But that country realized that they needed to learn some English. Their, their administrators and their legal people and all the big bosses in the country, they needed to have English. And so they said, well, somebody come over here and teach us some basic English. And people were looking about, and one mission agency asked this fellow, said, hey, will you go teach some English over there? Just a couple years. And he goes, well, yeah, I guess I'll go for a couple years. And he went for a couple of years. And he served. Well, obviously, those government people didn't learn enough English in two years to be able to compete on the world scene. So they said, we need you to stay and keep teaching. He said, no, I, I signed up for two years. I'm here for two years. I'm going back. And they said, well, send some other people. He said, well, look, what you need to know is I'm an evangelical Christian and all my friends are evangelical Christians like me. And they said, well, they like you? And he said, yeah. They said, well, that's okay. Send them on over here. We got to have people teach us English. So he began to send them over there. And that agency began to send missionaries to live in that country to teach English legally to the government and everything, and the country began to open up. But the cool part of the story is when he said, I'll go for a couple years, he was 78 years old at the time. And the Lord used him to open up a country. He just died about two weeks ago, still on the mission field, this time in Taiwan, at 94 years old. The Lord can use anybody, anywhere, anywhen. What unexpected source might he use to speak to you? Are we sufficiently humble when we come to his word and ask ourselves afresh, Lord, is it me? How do you want me to be involved? Is there something in your past that maybe up till right now you've kind of thought, well, I didn't think I could be involved since I have done This or made that decision? Is there something ordinary in your hand that you think, but God couldn't use this? What is that that God might use? Maybe your lack of language skills, like Moses. I'm not a good communicator. God doesn't call you because you're a phenomenal linguist, God gives you that skill to learn a new language when you say yes to the call. I promise you, if you could have seen my report card from kindergarten all the way through the 12th grade, you would be amazed that I have a doctoral degree. My mom sang the Hallelujah Chorus when I graduated from high school. All those years my report card said, it was terrible. I couldn't learn anything. I didn't want to learn anything. I stayed away from school. Mary and I went to high school together, and we never met until... The year after we had graduated, because I was never there. Well, I hardly ever participated in school. But God has given me a love for languages, and I have been able to learn some languages. God is able to give you what He expects back from you. Don't let your lack of language skills be a barrier. You, and then just let me just say: just don't waste your life on you. It's not yours. You're here for just a little while. Night is coming when no man can work. When you step from this life into that which is truly life, and you look back over your shoulder to see what you did with your time and your money, if all you have ever done with your time and your money is what you've done with it up to this moment, will you be pleased with yourself for what you have done for the Lord of glory who died for you we're just here for a minute turn around twice and this life is over what will you do for his sake and for his glory you can say no and you can say lord but you cannot say no lord because the moment you do he's not you are and he said in Luke six forty six, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and you do not do what I say? What is he said? He has said, go and make disciples of all the nations, teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. When he calls you, how will you answer? Suppose when we leave here right now, you're walking out the door, car keys in your hand hopefully after you stay for lunch, but you're walking out of this room, and you're taken. Your body falls down, and there you go. You're going through the death passage. And your mind, as you go through this death passage, going to glory, you're... You're thinking about the way you lived your life, uh, how you invested your money, how you built your own comfort zone, or whatever it is true of your life, as you're going through the death passage, somebody pulls back a drape, and you're able to see into the pit of hell, and it dawns on you, those people are going to be there in abject horror and suffering for all eternity, and in a million, million years, they're still going to be beginning their time suffering, and you see people, you know, your neighbors, your family members, your friends, people from other countries where you could have gone, it's all going to dawn on you, and then you're standing out in the parking lot again with your keys in your hand. God's giving you more time, another chance. What would you change? If Jesus was going to come back tomorrow, and not to everybody, but just to you, he's going to come back and live his life through you so the world can see what a Christian should look like in this day and time. And he's gonna live through you. Here's a question. What would he have to change about your life to be him? What would he have to change? Change it. Change it. Repent of it. Repentance is not just for pagans who need to come to faith the first time. It's for us when we realize we are serving ourselves and we are living for our own comfort zones at the expense of nations that desperately need to hear the gospel. He's calling right now in this room. He is calling to go or to give, to spend or to be spent, but the nations need the gospel. When He calls, how will you answer? Let's pray. Father, Thank you for your presence among us. Thank you for your word. Thank you for a church like this that cares about missions so much that they dedicate a weekend to hold before the people the challenge of the gospels to take your word to the nations. Speak to each one of us, Lord. Don't let a single person walk out of here the way they were when they came in. Let us go or give as if souls depended on us this day. For Christ's sake, for your glory, for the advance of your kingdom, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen.